Please open your Bibles to the next two in, uh, to Matthew chapter 22. Uh, it's page 848, and we'll be reading from sentence 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him, trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with Herodians. Teacher, they said, know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They bought him a denarius, and he said to them, whose image is on this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. Our second reading will be from First Peter. You can find that on page 1049. That's 1049. We're reading from chapter 3, uh, verse 8 to 18. So look for the big three and then the little eight. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we live in the era of opinions, where everyone has something to say, and we listen intently to it. I'll tell you what I mean. You're planning a trip overseas. You don't believe the articles written about the hotels. What do you do? Go to TripAdvisor. You want the reviews. 
you look for the five star, the three star, the one star, the hair, not going there. We want opinions. We want reviews. We look at TV shows, right? We listen to people who are educated, PhDs, experts in their field, and what pops up? Tweets at the bottom from people who've potentially never read a book in their life, but we want to know their opinion alongside the experts. We read newspapers, online, scrolling through articles. If anything like me, you just read the headline because you want to feel informed. And then you jump down and you what? Look at the comment section. This is a real low point of human society. I'm not talking about the lack of grammar, but it's just this maze of all sorts of opinions. We live in the era of opinion. And in, in this era, a question was written on a chalkboard at the front of this church that went like this. Why don't Christians keep their opinions to themselves? I'm not sure who wrote this question, whether it's more of a conservative person who's angry at Christians supporting refugees or aid overseas. Every time we do an appeal at the front here, uh, we'll always get angry letters or comments like people saying, Australia first, charity starts at home. Maybe it's a more progressive person, angry at the Israel Folau Instagram post or pro-life uh, protesters. Or maybe it's just someone had a Christian walk up to them and say, do you know Jesus? But the question was asked, why don't Christians keep their opinions to themselves? And I think it is a brilliant question because it allows us to open up the topic of diversity and different worldviews, of religious freedom in a secular country, of how to talk to people who are different to you. So what we're going to do, really, is just four things in answering this question. The first is we're going to start off by finding some common ground, that whether you're secular or religious, Christian or couldn't care less, some common ground which we can all agree on because we all do, right? And then from there, we're going to look at the role of government and does it have a say on Christians sharing their opinion? Then we're going to look at a couple of misconceptions and then finally bring it home with how should Christians share their opinion and how might it be different to others? Now, at the end of it, there's a chance for a bit of Q&A. On the screen, you'll see a website, slido.com. You go to that website, type in the hashtag OQFG, stands for One Question for God, and uh, put that in and then you can submit your questions there anonymously or you can be named and uh, I'll i do my best to answer a couple of them at the end. Make sense? Let's dive in. All right. Before asking whether Christians should keep their opinion to themselves, let's step back a bit, right? And ask, should all of us, whether Christian or not, keep our opinions to ourselves? Should we share or indeed impose upon others what we think? Answer to that question really, it depends, doesn't it? It depends on what opinion, what truth is being expressed. Let me tell you what I mean. It depends on whether what is being shared is a truck truth or a Vegemite truth. These are not philosophical terms you'd find in a university textbook, but they're helpful nonetheless. It depends whether something is a truck truth. What do I mean by that is this. If you're standing in front of a real semi-trailer coming 100 kilometres straight at you and you don't move out of the way, 
it doesn't matter what you believe, whether you think trucks are real or not. You don't move, what's going to happen? Ba-boom. You're going to get run over, right? It is true regardless of what you think. Now, if someone shared their opinion saying, hang on, maybe you should move out of your way. Maybe you should move. That's not judgmental. That's just an act of love, isn't it? Because you have that person's welfare in mind. So truck truth is true regardless, true for all. But then there's Vegemite truth. Who put your hand up if you like Vegemite? Oh, gee, okay, right. Put your hand up if you think it's one step removed from eating dirt. Okay, there you are. We're divided. People love it, hate it. You can share your opinion. You can get people to try it. Generally do this with Americans. Try the stuff. But people have differing views, right? Now, the friend of Vegemite truth is out of freedom. You're free to like it or not like it. It's your preference. Truck truth, Vegemite truth. Let's give some examples. You're... If you're driving fast, right, you have a high risk of being in a high-speed crash, whether that leads to death or injury. That's true whether you're a great driver or a terrible driver. So what's imposed upon us is speed limits, that you have to wear a seatbelt. It's not a preference thing. It is true for everyone who is a driver. Truck truth. But then there's a whole bunch of Vegemite truths, like the food you eat, the holidays you go on, the music you listen to, it's going to be different from the person sitting next to you. But the question is, where does morality fit into this? Where does lifestyle choice, is it a truck truth or a Vegemite truth? Now, judging from the question asked, why don't Christians keep their opinions themselves, I presume the person who wrote this is thinking, why do Christians impose their views, particularly moral ones, lifestyle choices, onto others? That it may be good for you, O oh Christian, to think that, but don't impose it on others. Not necessarily for all, because morality, lifestyle choices, it's a Vegemite truth. And it can kind of feel as if Christians are going around forcing everyone to eat Vegemite, regardless of who they are, open up, lap it up. Now, here's the thing. Previous generations in the West and other cultures around the world generally have morality as a truck truth. It's true regardless. But we in the West have moved it from the truck truth category into the Vegemite. Now, how did this happen, right? The era of opinions which we live in can only survive or thrive because we live in the wider age of authenticity. Where all rules have been dismantled and you as an individual create your own beliefs, your own values. Where the number one rule in our culture is this, I need to be true to myself. The worst thing you can do in this culture is have a moral standard imposed upon you, whether that's parents, society, government, or indeed the church. Now we're told Christians shouldn't impose or share their opinion. Why? Because they're breaking the number one rule telling people how to live when that's Vegemite truth. But the question is this. Are Christians, are we the only one doing this? Is it just a religious thing? Because here's the thing. Secular people, and if you're here a secular person, you do this 
all the time. That though you may say morals are relative, they're Vegemite truth, there's no ultimate truth, do whatever's good for you, out of your mouth does come comments like, that is so wrong. That shouldn't be happening. It's 2019 already. Everybody should, dot, dot, dot. All those comments are moralistic comments imposing themselves onto others. There's a misconception where we say the modern West is a very immoral place, but no, 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 it is a very moral place to live. Very moralistic. As Charles Taylor said, we are asked to maintain standards of equality which cover wider and wider classes of people, bridge more and more kinds of differences that impinge more and more on our lives. Let me give you some examples. You're in a workplace, and there's someone there who thinks that men work harder than women and only wants to employ men. What's said? You're not allowed to think that. You're definitely not allowed to act like that. You need to change. You're in a social setting, and someone doesn't like a particular person from a nationality and says certain words about them. What's said? You can't say that. That's wrong. That's not a preference thing. You need to change the way you speak. Even in the same-sex marriage survey, right, two years ago, where Christians were told, don't impose your view on marriage, it's male and female, onto others. But here's the thing, we said marriage as a country is two people, just two, and impose that on people who don't think that in our country, whether they're religious, the Muslim or the Mormon community, or those who are not religious, like the polyamorous community, and said, no, 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 two people. Now, my point in all those examples is just to say this, Christians are not the only one who impose morals onto others. Secular people do it all the time, where they move truth from the Vegemite category to the truck category and say it's true for all. Here's the thing. Even if you say at the end of the day, no one should impose their views on others, you're imposing your view that no one should impose. You're doing the very thing that you said no one should do. Here's the thing. We can't escape it. Whether you're Christian or secular, we do this all the time. The question really is, will you admit to doing it? Will you acknowledge that you're doing it? You might be thinking, yeah, but but we live in a secular country, right? Not a Christian one, not a religious one, we live in a secular one. So maybe secular people should have more of a say than those who are Christian or religious. And that moves us on to the second point, right? The role of government and that of religious freedom. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, the first reading. Page 849. Because here in this passage... The religious leaders at the time asked Jesus for his opinion, particularly about the government. Now, their purpose is not to learn. They want to trap him. Before they do that, they notice they butt him up. But they ask him, verse, what is it, 17, page 849. Tell us then, Jesus, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar's what is Caesar's, and to God's what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. 
So they left him and went away. Now, I highlight this part of the Bible because it shows an understanding what Jesus thinks of the relationship between church and government, church and the state. Notice Jesus doesn't say, taxes, why bother? Ignore Caesar, ignore the government. Let's start a revolution all about the church and anti-state. Doesn't do that, does he? But neither does he say, well, given to Caesar, you're really given to God. It's a Christian country. We're all about a theocracy. No, no, no. He separates the two. He says, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's and God's what is God's. That the two are different because they have different roles to play. And this, my friends, is the beginnings of the separation of church and state. The role of the government, the role of Caesar, the state, its role is to look after the good order of society, its citizens, and protect people from evil and enact justice. Its role is not spiritual. It cannot make anyone a Christian. The role of the church, its focus is spiritual, to be a Christian community in a wider community to share of the hope of the love and knowledge of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Different roles, church and state. Now, I'm aware when it comes to talking about religious freedom, it's a bit tense at the moment in our culture, right? It's a bit tense because some people who are religious saying uh, we're being persecuted, and so they're sort of shouting louder. Others who are anti-religious oppression are saying we're about to become the handmaid's tale, and so we just want to shut people up, right? It's a bit tense at the moment. So let me just say a couple of things in this space. Know this. According to Jesus, he doesn't need the government to be pro-Christian for his mission to advance. Have a look on the screen. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So if the gates of death aren't going to destroy the church, no political party... No political leader is going to do it, right? That doesn't mean, though, that Christians just roll over and play dead. Whether you're religious or not, whether you're Christian or couldn't care less, you want to be for religious freedom. I'll give you two reasons. On the preface that I'm not a lawyer, right? The closest I've come to law is watching Legally Blonde, right? So let me just <laughs> clarify that. But there's two reasons why I think, regardless of who you are, should be for religious freedom. First is this, everyone needs laws by the government to protect their citizens from the government. A government that does not have religious freedom rights that protect individuals from having a faith or not having a faith is not a healthy place to be. Religious freedom is kind of like the canary in the coal mine, the litmus test for how government's going. Because as someone said, a government that can regulate worship is a government that can do anything. And you look at countries at present, North Korea, Iran, even Russia is becoming the, the first thing to go is always religious freedom. Where they make everyone ascribe to no religion or one religion. Religious freedom is always the first to go. So in a country like Australia, we need religious rights not to just be assumed but spelled out for the sake of all. But the second thing is this, Christians, we should be for religious freedom, not because we want life to be comfortable. I mean, we worship Jesus Christ, the man who was stripped naked, executed on a cross and says, come follow me. 
That's not a life of comfort, right? But why as a Christian being for religious freedom is for the other? For the next generation. For those to have the freedom to choose and to explore faith without the government breathing down their neck. Because everyone must give an account before Jesus. And we want people to have the opportunity to do that, to explore the faith. But also for others coming to this land, for the Muslim man or woman who comes from a place where no religious freedom is present to a place that does have it, whether they can explore whether to keep their faith, explore another one, or have none at all. It's always for the other. A couple of weeks ago, I was looking at something online which I shouldn't have. A Facebook debate. Ooh, they get ugly, don't they? And they, they're kind of like looking at a three-legged dog. You know you should look, but you just can't help it. It's sort of like you're drawn to like, what is it? Like, as I was reading this Facebook debate, right, it was about religious freedom. Now, everyone was on board with religious freedom because the United Nations is, right? And you don't want to go against them. Everyone was on board. But then one person asked this question, but who will protect us from religious people? Someone asked, what do you mean? What are some examples? The examples were given. Scripture in schools, religious tax benefits, school chaplains, prayer in parliament. Let me just talk about a couple of misconceptions about religious freedom. The things identified there, scripture in schools, tax benefits, prayer and parliament, those kind of things, are good things, I would say, but not reflective of what religious freedom is. They're not rights. And if they go, it doesn't mean religious freedom goes with it. I'll tell you what I mean. Tax deductions, right? Uh, given to churches and, and to um, places of worship and charity groups, religious charity groups. Now, if the government was to take them away, it would be a loss. Anne Robinson, who's a charity lawyer, estimated that $14.6 billion happens in volunteer work in those organisations every year in this country. Now, I don't want the average Aussie to pick up the tab on that, right? But if those restrictions go, here's the thing. We as a church are going to continue what we're doing. Loving the poor, caring for the vulnerable, meeting together. It's not going to affect, it's going to be a loss, but a religious freedom is not tainted. I'll take, for example, scriptures in schools. It's a good thing. In part, it acknowledges the diversity in our schools and a holistic approach to a learning where spirituality is part of it. And I very much disagree with the line that, well, if you want a religious education, go to a private school. That's easy to say if you've got the money, but a whole bunch of people can't afford to go to private school. Very privileged dismissal. But if scripture in schools goes, it will be disappointing. It will be a loss, but we will continue. So it's clarifying what is religious freedom, and it is not religious privilege so that Christians could do whatever they want. No, no, no. It is protecting those who choose to have a faith and giving them the protection to live that out at home place of worship, in their workplace, in the private and the public arena. The fourth and final thing is how should Christians share their opinion? And how might it be different to those who are not? 
Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, page 1049. Let's see what that says. 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll just have a look at verse 15. 1049. 1 Peter 3, verse 15 says this, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. So Christians are to share the hope that they have when asked. But the question I want to ask is, how did we get this hope? As it says, the hope that you have, how did we come to have this truth? So to speak, enlightened. Because most people become enlightened because they move from a state of being uneducated to educated. Once I was a bigot, now I'm a tolerant. Once I was unaware, but now I'm aware. And that's why I think the way they do. Most people go on that journey, and in the end, it's something within themselves that made them see. But the Christian, so to speak, becomes enlightened, not because we've discovered it, we're born into it, or somehow we're amazingly smart or intelligent. No, no, no. The Christian has the hope they have because it's been revealed to them. We once were blind, but now we see. That's not because of us. That's because God has made it known to us. See what I mean? You know the game I'm playing where you're trying to get the person to guess the song and you clap the beat. So let's say happy birthday. Now you know the song in your head, but the other person doesn't, right? You know that game? Stanford University did an experiment to see how often people could guess the song by clapping. Now, they asked the person who was clapping, who said, this is the, this is the song, clap it out. How many uh, percentage-wise do you think people would guess accurately? They said, oh, about 90%. It'll be easy, right? When they did the experiment, the person listening, trying to guess the song, guessed 2.5% correct. Three out of 120 songs. Now, the drummer, the person clapping, right, couldn't imagine that the person wasn't hearing the song that's in their head. And, you know, it's easy. Come on, like, you know, don't you get it, right? But the only reason they know is because they've been told. And if they were in the opposite direction, they would have just as little success as everyone else in guessing. Ask Christians to be given good news, and the reason why we see it as good and understand it so is because the tune has been told to us by God himself. And it's not because we're morally superior, right? Verse 18 says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. When we were undeserving, least likely, God made it aware to us. Now, why bring this up, right, in a discussion like this? Because here's the thing. When you're clapping along, sharing your opinion, you can get frustrated, right? Like, why don't you get it? Come on, it's good. Why don't you think like this? Come on. You know, it, it, what's wrong with you? Isn't it obvious? And in this frustration, right, when you're sharing what you think is good, it can lead to saying something you regret, when you're frustrated, it can lead to an insult or trying to force or manipulate or coerce someone, right? 
But the Christian shares their opinion knowing one thing. I cannot ultimately change someone's mind. Because that's not my job. That's God's. Because God changed me to think the way I do. To believe what I believe. And God changes others. And I cannot ultimately change anyone. And that truth brings a humility and indeed a patience when talking to people who are different. And the times that we Christians stuff up, when we're rude, when we're arrogant, when we're pushy, is nine times out of ten because we've forgotten this truth. And we think it's about us trying to change someone else. There's one more thing that Christians should do when sharing their opinion. And generally, eh, we're not very good at this one, right? When sharing opinion, particularly with someone who's different, from a different world, you're engaging in dialogue, we should do it more face-to-face than Facebook. 1 Peter 3.15, that was you read, says, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for the reason for the hope you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Or the top, verse 8, all of you be like-minded, sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. It is very hard to do those things on social media, on Snapchat or Twitter or Facebook or via email. Because social media in particular has this unfortunate tendency of dehumanizing people, of disconnecting their ideas from the person itself. That's why you generally say things online you'd never say to their face. But the Christian, we are for the whole person, not just their thoughts, but the whole person. I mean, Jesus rose bodily. We're for the whole package, flesh and blood. And our goal is not to win an argument or to think, get people to think, gee, he's impressive. Our goal is to love the person in their entirety. So as much as possible, we Christians need to be different to our culture because it's easy to keep it online. It is harder to do it face-to-face. It is easy to be compassionate by sending a person an emoji. It's harder to be compassionate by actually listening to someone when they're there in front of you. Oh, it's easy to be sympathetic by simply liking a post on Facebook. It is harder to be sympathetic when you're listening to someone go on and on from a different mindset. It's easy to evangelize by retweeting something. It's harder to share your faith when you're eyeballing someone in the eye. So engaging, when engaging in discussion, right, the conversation, it may start online, but always bring it out into the real world. Don't let it end there. Talk over a, a drink, a meal, face to face. So that you can share the hope that you have with gentleness, and respect. Because our goal is not to win the argument or to get people to think we're impressive. No, no, our goal is to love the person and sharing the hope that we have. Let me end by telling you a story. I'll pray and answer a couple of questions. Angus is a guy who grew up secular, secular family. And uh, he had a mate, though, who was an evangelical Christian. Now, for many years, they would talk. Angus would talk to his Christian mate. They would talk about all sorts of things, life, 
morality, Jesus, spirituality, things like that. Through uni, no, through high school, through uni. And then one day, Angus's Christian mate invited him to hear a Bible talk, not too far from here. At the end of that Bible talk, Angus said to his Christian mate, so uh, I, at the end of that talk, decided to become a Christian. I, uh, I believe in Jesus Christ. Now, he was reluctant to share that with his Christian mate because he expected his Christian mate to say, see, I told you, I knew you'd get it. Come on, I knew I'd win. I knew you'd see my side of the story. But you know what his Christian mate did? He welled up with tears, overjoyed. And Angus said he realized in that moment that his Christian friend had been sharing the hope that he had all those years, not because he wanted to win, but because he actually loved him and shared the hope that he had. Let me pray. Gracious Lord, we ask that as we go about sharing our opinions, this good news that you've given us as Christians, that we would do so knowing who is ultimately in charge, our role to share the hope we have, but to do it with gentleness and respect. We're sorry for the times we don't do this and ask that you would, no matter where we're at, the people we rub shoulders, how different they may be, be a people marked by speaking the truth, but speaking it in love. Amen. All right. Any questions? Let's have a look. It's just loading or reconnecting, I should say. All right, here we go. First question. If the role of government is a good order of society, would you encourage a Christian to enter politics? If so, any advice how to be a Christian in politics? That's a good question. All right. It's hard, isn't it? It is, it's very hard to be a Christian politician. I'll tell you why. Because one moment, people are saying, keep your Christian views, shut them up, right? Don't impose them. And the next moment, if you are a Christian in politics, they'll say, hang on, aren't you a Christian? Shouldn't you be for this? And so, you, look, you can't win either way. You're trapped either way. And so in, it is very hard to do that, right? So the, most of us aren't politicians, so I can encourage you, pray for your politicians, whether they're Christian or not, atheist, Muslim, agnostic, evangelical Christians. Pray for them, right? Because they have a hard job anyway. But pray for particularly Christian politicians because that is a hard gig because you're trapped either way. I think as a Christian, because uh, you are representing a whole bunch of people, you've been voted in to represent a whole bunch of people, not the Christian community, but a whole bunch of community your constituent. You're making policies that ultimately are for the welfare of all. That's hard to pin, like, is this a Christian policy or not a Christian policy? That's actually a hard space to do because you're actually representing people. I think where a Christian politician should stand out is the way they go about their job, the way they're interacting with other politicians, with other 
people and, and their character, the way they go. But I think that in particular is the focus of what it means to be a Christian politician, um, but respect to you if you enter that realm. Um, how can we expect people to follow God's moral principles when they don't know or trust him? Yes, and this is every culture. Um, every culture, in different ways, rejects God uh, and his order of society, right? So that's every culture, not just every, our culture. Every culture rejects God in different ways. Now, God's grace is sufficient that he gives uh, people, even who don't worship him, even who want a bar of him, he gives all sorts of good things to people. I mean, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous, right? And so he'll give to, pe- to nations, countries, people that don't trust him good things. Food, order, government. I mean, they're good things, right? But... That's why the conversation is always going to be difficult. It is always going to be difficult in no matter what culture you're in, particularly like ours, dialoguing with people who don't have a shared common basis. So how can we... We shouldn't expect it on the one hand, right? Never expect that we're going to progress as a society where there's heaven on earth. We're, not, we're never going to get there, right? There's going to be no place where you think, ah, oh, I think we've made it. Because people are always going to be anti-God, anti-the gospel, right? But that doesn't mean you just shut up and hide. I mean, Jesus Christ, you think about him, he spoke the truth plainer than anyone. He loved harder than anyone. And in the end, he was executed for it. So the, the idea that you can just be loving and gracious and kind and think, yeah, it'll be all right, that, that ain't going to happen. We will naturally offend people. That's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Because if you don't question, you don't get offended, you don't think, right? But in terms of how to expect people, in some ways we shouldn't, but in some ways we should, what we should do is expect um, the conversations, the dialogue we have to be tough, to be hard, um, Knowing, as I said before, God is the ultimately one to change anyone and to see actually that God is good. One more question. Our PM is a Christian. What do you think about how he does his job in light of this? (laughs) There's a bit of a job review right there. Welcome, Scott Morrison. Let's give you a bit of feedback. I, I don't want to do that. Because, gee, being a pilot is a thankless job, isn't it? It's like garbage collectors. We never thank them. We just assume they do it, right? There's a whole bunch of jobs which are just... And that politicians is a thankless job. As I said before, it's easy. I mean, Scott Morris is a good example of one moment said, don't impose your Christianity on others. Next minute, why don't you act like this as a Christian? That's hard, and that's for him. I want to say as much as possible, because particularly as a country like Australia, we're anti-authority... Right? We're a colony convict background, that kind of thing. We want to stick it to the man. That kind of... As much as possible, let's be supportive of whether the Prime Minister is Christian or not. Submit to authority. 
and be praying for our leaders and doing that. How he's going, I'm not going to comment, right? But pray for our leaders, no matter who they are, no matter if they have a faith or not, that they would enact the role that God has given them, whether they know or not that God has given the role, to protect the good order of society, to have healthy religious rights, religious freedom rights, and to enact justice on those who perpetrate evil. So to that, I think Karina's going to come up now, and she's going to pray. Actually, pray for our government. Pray for us as we share our opinions with others, amongst other things.